Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. As we face issues that divide us as a nation, it's reassuring to know that five current and past governors, Democrats and Republicans, are working together as champions of early childhood education. Later this hour, we'll talk with filmmaker Willa Kammerer about her encouraging documentary, Starting at Zero, Reimagining Education in America. We begin with a poet. Chelsea Rathburn is the Poet Laureate of Georgia. Her recent collection is Still Life with Mother and Knife. On Sunday, she will be featured in an event for the Decatur Book Festival, a virtual reading and conversation titled Voicing the Unspeakable. She's here with us now via Zoom. Chelsea Rathburn, welcome to City Lights. Oh, thank you for having me. Still Life with Mother and Knife opens with an epigraph from Bruno Bettelheim, the child psychoanalyst. In The Uses of Enchantment, Bettelheim wrote about how children interpret fairy tales to understand danger and death. Your quote from that work is... The child wonders who or what projects him into adversity and what can prevent this from happening to him. Are there benevolent powers in addition to his parents? Are his parents benevolent powers? Chelsea, how does this epigraph to Still Life with Mother and Knife prepare readers for what follows? Well, I, I think it announces some of the dangers that are present in the book. This is a book that contains a lot of darkness. You know, I had questions when I was writing it, questions about my capacity as a mother, uh, but also thinking about uh, when, when I became a mother, I started thinking back on my own childhood, my own girlhood, um, about so many dangerous things that had happened, you know, sort of near misses and, and brushes with danger. And, uh, and I also thought a, a lot about uh, the stories that my female relatives told about motherhood and uh, about pregnancy and uh, the early days of motherhood. And I thought about the darkness in those stories and the way that those stories sort of cast a shadow over my own pregnancy and my own, own motherhood. Hmm. Postpartum a fairy tale describes the brothers grim, rendered most grim with lowercase g and one m. Some terrifying references there to how your mother and aunt loved but loathed you and your cousin. Did they really share such horrible thoughts with you? <laughs> did they? <laughs> they actually did. Yeah. At what age? <laughs> 
as early as I can remember. So I, I probably heard these stories, I'm guessing, from the time I was six or seven. I mean, of course, they, they, they loved us. You know, but my mother said that in those first weeks after childbirth, she just had these dark fantasies. She didn't, she didn't want to hurt me herself, right? But she hoped that they, they had a Siamese cat. And she just hoped that the cat would jump into my crib and, and uh, smother me. And, oh my God, yeah, she really. told you this when you were six. <laughs> I, I mean, thinking back, I think that's how young I was. Um, you know, I might've been eight, eight or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, Lois, I was so scared uh, to show this poem to my mother uh, after I'd written it. It was, it was coming out in a magazine, I think the Missouri Review. And I finally, finally had her sitting at my dining room table and said, okay, <laughs> you should read this one. And, uh, and she read it and, and she laughed. <laughs> she, she said, well, I, I did tell these stories. You know, this is, this is true. But, you know, this was her experience. Um, and one of my aunts said, you know, as, as reference in the poem, her bizarre fantasy was that my cousin would end up in a washing machine. Hmm, okay. Well, I'm glad that your relationship with your mom isn't really that dark, and I love hearing you laugh after reading that. Working through difficulty with your mother continues with the poem, Introduction to Home Economics. What is the significance of this poem? Well, this is a poem... <laughs> This is about maternal guilt and uh, my own guilt as a mother. And also, uh, you know, mothers have, I think, an uncanny ability to make their children feel guilty. And uh, this was Introduction to Home Economics is, is a story about uh, something that, that did happen when I was very young, when I was six years old. My mother and I were on the front porch carving jack-o'-lanterns and for some reason, my mother let me help carve, and uh, and I I ended up uh, slicing her hand um, very badly, and she had to go to the emergency room. And but the the thing that was interesting was, as I was growing up, every single Halloween, my mother would remind me, you know, some things. There would be some joke about it, some comment about, uh, yeah, that you know that year that you <laughs> tried to kill me, you know, tried to stab me, uh, sliced my hand with with this knife. And, and it wasn't until, you know, my, my daughter was, was born and uh, starting to have her first Halloweens. And I finally, after all these years of feeling guilty about this, I, I sort of took a step back and said, wait a minute, what was I doing with that knife? <laughs> when I was six years old, what on earth? Why I would, I, you know, my, my daughter's eight now and she doesn't handle butcher knives. No. And in fact, the last line of that poem is, though she was the one who handed me the knife, she being your mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was, I was trying to sort of explore all, the, all of the sides, all of the nuances there. And of course, it's also, I think, about, when I mean, the title is Introduction to Home Economics. The first section of the book, all of the poems are titled Introduction to Blank, right? They're, they're sort of uh, lessons in girlhood, uh, initiations into womanhood. And, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting in my memory, you know, my parents got back from the hospital and my mother was bandaged, but she still was the one who resumed the task of mothering. And I remember, I may be misremembering, but what I remember is that she went back out with me and, and she was the one who finished carving those jack-o'-lanterns with me. I was thinking, you know, also about gender roles and, and uh, the things that my mother did for me. Introduction to Art History is in three sections. The second is titled A Brief History of Women's Art, which conveys centuries of information in one stanza. And the third portion is The Birth of Venus, would you talk about the theme of visual art in your poetry? Oh, absolutely. Well, it's interesting that you bring this poem up because I, had, I struggled to write this poem. Later in the book, the book is very concerned with, with the visual arts and uh, with the female body and the way that the female body is rendered in classical art, high art, that is, 
museum pieces, um, but also in things like Playboy magazine. You know, and I, I was also, uh, when I was in college, I, I, I modeled for an artist, for a sculptor. And so I was thinking about, you know, I've had experiences sort of on, on both sides of the canvas, you know, uh, uh, as an observer and appreciator of art, but also watching the artist sketching me. And I just, I love all forms of art, but I, I really love paintings and sculptures. I feel sometimes that I write about my, my own life, my own experience primarily, uh, but I, I really do love engaging with works of art as ways to also get outside myself a little bit, not writing purely from my own experience, but uh, interacting with art. I think that uh, art gives poets an, a new way of, of rendering the world. I especially appreciated the line from The Birth of Venus, but more surprising than her beauty was how she radiated happiness, which should have been art's antidote. Would you unpack that? Oh, sure. Well, that, that section, I was uh, thinking back about my time uh, modeling uh, for a sculptor college. And I had come up, uh, you know, through, through junior high, uh, through high school, you know, thinking of myself as, as a kind of artist. Uh, I started writing poems at, at a young age. Uh, I was in a magnet, uh, magnet school for the arts in middle school doing creative writing. And uh, my, my friends and I, you know, we all thought that art had to be, it had to be very, very dark, right? Uh, depressing. Um, you know, that we were, we were sort of bleeding onto the page, you know, just putting our raw pain and confusion of being teenagers onto the page. And, and then I, when I was in college, I uh, answered a classified ad. I went to Florida State University and, and uh, people could take out little classified ads in the student newspaper. And so I connected with this artist. Her name is uh, Holly Jill Smith. She's a sculptor. And she wasn't much older than me. She was still in her, I think, early to mid-20s. And she was gorgeous. I mean, she really looked like Botticelli's Venus. So beautiful. And she was happily married. And she was just this wonderful, as I say in, in the, the line that you quoted, you know, I, I thought that happiness was art's antidote. You know, I thought, well, how, how can you be happy and creative at the same time? And being around her, I really... So, oh, they're, they're, this is a strange model. Maybe the model I've had in my head is not, is not quite right. You know, there are alternatives. The Greek tragedy of Medea is another recurring theme in this collection. Would you read from Furious Medea, 1838, the portion that begins, how many times have I seen that look? Absolutely. This is a poem that is in conversation with Eugene Delacroix's paintings and sketches of Medea, which I encountered. I had a severe case of postpartum depression and uh, struggled with it for a long time. I was teaching a, a world literature seminar and encountered, I think I was, well, I was teaching Euripides tragedy Medea and uh, came across, you know, putting, I think putting together PowerPoint slides or something, um, came across Delacroix's painting. And so the beginning of the poem is describing. It's describing the painting. It's describing the fact that in this painting, uh, Medea, who will go on to slaughter her children, she is caught in the moment before it happens. So she's holding the knife, but the painting is very still and it's beautiful. It's soft and beautiful, uh, but still you can see in, in one child's face in particular, there is terror. How many times have I seen that look? the flash of fear on my young daughter's face when I have raged at her or some small thing. It passes, the fury and the terror. My daughter puts on socks and the driver yields, but I'm left shaken, a stranger. Maybe all mothers murder their children's innocence. In the painting, Medea holds her boys so close, they're one body again, two cords she must cut. The children have no choice but to love the hand that holds the knife. Do you believe that all mothers murder their children's innocence? 
I, I know I, I, I certainly felt that way when I was in the thick of being a new mother. Uh, as I mentioned, I, you know, I had pretty severe case of postpartum depression. I, I will stand by that. Yeah, I, you know, thinking about my own childhood. Um, I think that I think the children are resilient and uh, we bounce back from some of those. But I also, you know, some of those small things that our parents do. You know, but I also think that as parents, we're, we're all fallible and uh, all of us lose our tempers and sometimes make decisions that are, are bad decisions. So that's what I'm really referring to. I'm not, you know, I'm not referring to uh, saying every mother is going to uh, destroy her child's life. Of course. I think that many women will relate to the horror of postpartum depression because here you're supposed to be elated after this miracle of birth and you cannot comprehend why you're feeling what you do. Does that bring us back to the importance of voicing the unspeakable? Were you writing this as much for other women as for yourself? Absolutely. I felt... Uh, when I had my baby, I felt very much invisible. And we opened our conversation, you know, talking about the stories that my mother and my aunt would tell. And my experience did not match those stories at all. You know, I, I did not have violent fantasies. Um, I, I, instead, I had a lot of suicidal ideation. I wanted very much all of my negative thoughts were turned toward myself and thinking I, I don't deserve uh, my child would be better off if I weren't her mother. Yeah, it was, it's really terrible. <laughs> the, the, sad, one of the saddest things was I was afraid to talk to anybody because in my irrational um, state of mind, I felt like if I was honest about everything that was going on, my baby would be taken away from me, that I would be separated from her. And so I just sort of suffered. <laughs> Didn't sort of suffer. I absolutely suffered in silence. And uh, it was... Yeah, it was very difficult. Uh, so when I, when I started writing, when I started trying to process all of this and thinking about my, my own girlhood and different experiences I had as a child and, and then pregnancy, early motherhood, um, I was thinking about, you know, what, what were some of the, what sort of book might have consoled me? What didn't I have when I was in that space? And so I, I was absolutely thinking, you know, I would like if, you know, if one person were to pick the book up and feel seen, I, that would be wonderful. Chelsea, how long did your depression last? Oh, gosh. My daughter was born in January of 2012. And in 2015, I flew to France by myself to study Eugene Delacroix's sketches of Medea. And for me, I... Obviously, I, I did not have severe depression from 2012 to the end of 2015. But for me, that trip was what I felt like I finally got my life back. Like it, it felt for a long time, sort of like layers of it were, were peeling away. Um, but there was something about I started writing these Medea poems. And then I decided, you know, I, I must go to France. <laughs> there are about, uh, I think it's 28 sketches that that uh, Delacroix made in preparation for the paintings. And those, those are not in public display, but I was able to sit in a documentation room at a museum and, and, and hold the actual sketches. And there was something about making that commitment to myself, you know, to go back to, I cashed in all my frequent flyer miles. And, and it was my first time being away from my daughter for more than a night. Uh, previously, I had only traveled away from her for one night at a time. And so there was something about sort of taking my life back, you know, and saying, okay, um, and, and it's it's a little scary, you know, poets, we don't make um, a lot of money off of our poetry. Really? Really, I know, it's shocking. <laughs> so there was there was really something bold about saying, okay, you know, I, I don't know if these poems are going to turn into anything or what's going to happen with them, but I'm, I'm believing in this project enough to pick up and fly to another country by myself, away from my child. This is important, this matters. And yeah, that, that was really what finally marked the end of it. Although I was emerging out of that depression for, for a long time before that. 
I have to say in terms of feeling validated, certainly the critical acclaim that this collection has received and being named Poet Laureate of Georgia, I hope made you feel that cashing in all those sky miles was the right thing to do. I love the poem reading Maurice Sendak instead of a nice nin. Would you read it to us? Oh, absolutely. My second book was called A Raft of Grief, and it, it dealt largely with the end of my first marriage and then meeting the man who would become my husband. And, and so whenever I would give readings from that book, I always would have to explain, you know, well, there, there are two husbands in this book, and there's, you know, the, the not-so-great husband, and then the the perfect, charming, you know, Prince Charming comes along here. And my husband, as I was working on Still Life with Mother and Knife, my husband kept saying, well, where am I in this book? There are no poems about me here. And I says, it's, it's not about you. It's not about you. So this is a poem that uh, I, I was consciously thinking about uh, my, my husband not appearing anywhere in the book, which is, is just funny, you know, given what, what happens here. I'm reading Maurice Sendak instead of Anais Nen. I wanted to write a poem about sex, the sex of the long married, about desire, its departures and returns. By way of the bobcat, I met by chance on the curving lane below our house. It bolted, I drove on. Its body, the surprise of it, and my husband's body, his muscular hide, sleek as an animal's, which after all this time should not surprise, but does. I tried to write the poem, praising my husband's form, the poem of gratitude, joy even, I'll use that word, but a phrase from a book intruded, a children's book, followed by an actual child, our daughter dropping her towel, shouting, nay, nay, and darting away. And it was her bright, joyful body I followed, laughing out of the poem and the room. What does this poem convey about a child's presence <laughs> in, a, in a couple's life? Well, I've been housebound since March with my wonderful daughter and my wonderful husband. Um, and I feel, <laughs> I feel as though at the, at the end of this pandemic lockdown, I, I think I know my daughter a lot better. You know, we've spent so many wonderful hours talking and laughing and doing art projects and taking nature walks and all of this. I don't feel like I know, and that sounds terrible. I was gonna say, I don't feel like I know my husband as well. I do, we have a, a wonderful, terrific marriage, but I miss having intimate talks with him. You know, I feel like uh, my, my daughter is, is omnipresent right now and she's enjoyable, she's enjoyable. But being together through the coronavirus has really, amplified the ways that, that children do have a way of sort of taking over the family, <laughs> my dynamics. Yeah, because she's, she's just, a, you know, she's, she can't go anywhere. Um, she's doing virtual school down the hall right now. You know, and meanwhile, you know, my, my husband and I, all summer, you know, we normally we look forward to having, uh, we sit down at the end of the day and have a drink together, have a conversation. And those conversations typically continue into the night. And, uh, you know, all summer we watched my daughter's bedtime kind of creep later and later and later. You know, she's, she's just been, she's been around. I, I mean, I think, uh, I think in, in my case, having a child has in many ways, you know, deepened my relationship with my husband. I love watching him as a father. It's been really wonderful. He's, he's a fantastic father. But I, I do, you know, miss some of those days when it was just the two of us. Or we had privacy. They do grow up, Chelsea. I, I know, I know. And she's already at the age now where she's a reader. And so she just curls up, goes off by herself with a novel and comes out a couple hours later and says, oh, I finished my book. Oh, that's wonderful. Uh, she's reading novels at seven. She's eight, but yes, yeah. She's been reading the Percy Jackson series this week. Summer, we read all the Harry Potter books as a family. She went on a Nancy Drew kick last spring. Isn't it amazing? I mean, I read Nancy Drew, and there's 
still, kids still relate to it. I know. I mean, was the feminism just so far ahead of its time with Nancy Drew? Yeah, it's been one really wonderful to see her. Uh, I, I hope she doesn't become a writer, but that's a possibility out there. Yeah, I would say it's certainly observed on a daily basis in your household. The Face on the Chalice is a poem about death. A deer your neighbor has killed while hunting. And it's also elegiac about the death of a friend. I was particularly moved by the words, I see what is not there as well as what is. Could that also be your creed as a poet? I, I think that's beautiful. <laughs> I, I think I'm, I, had, I had never thought of that, uh, but I, I think I will from now on. If... <laughs> well, I feel honored because clearly there are so many layers to this beautiful, dense language. And it's so wonderful to hear you laugh and to talk about the light in your life, as well as how beautifully you've captured and conveyed the darkness into this volume. I did try when I was shaping the book, I did want to include some joy. <laughs> because I, I know it, the book goes to very dark places. You know, at the, the end, I, I returned to my child, my daughter, and I have a poem called, In the Shower, My Daughter Studies My Naked Form. Uh, where I wanted to come back and see that uh, that poem closes on an image of me watching my daughter when she sleeps. And, you know, the, the feeling of just being overcome by joy and, and gratitude. You know, I wanted that to be an answer to show that, you know, it's possible to begin in a place as dark as some of the early postpartum poems and then come around, you know, there's a way through all of that. Chelsea Rathburn is the Poet Laureate of Georgia. She'll give a virtual reading from her latest book of poems, Still Life with Mother and Knife, and discuss Voicing the Unspeakable as part of the Decatur Book Festival this Sunday at 6.30 p.m., more information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Kindergarten began in Germany and arrived in the United States in the mid-19th century. Since that time, kindergarten has been considered the beginning of formal education. But for a long time now, researchers have known that education really starts at birth. And pre-kindergarten learning programs should be available to all. Willa Kammerer explores this in depth with her documentary, Starting at Zero. She joins us now. Willa, welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here with you. And I love knowing that you began your career as a public radio intern. Great to have one of the family on the other end of the microphone. 
Definitely. And it gives me a lot of respect for everything that you do. <laughs> well, I have a lot of respect for filmmaking, and this is your first feature-length documentary. What inspired you to create Starting at Zero? Well, you know, as with many things in life, it, it was something that just really evolved along the way. We actually never set out to make a feature length documentary. It just evolved into that. I worked closely throughout the evolution of the project with my client, the Salzans Charitable Foundation, who initially, you know, came to me with this idea they, uh, about creating a how-to video about how the state of Alabama had accomplished consistently the number one nationally rated pre-K program in the nation for over 10 years. You know, I think at the time Alabama was ranked the fourth poorest state. So how, how did they accomplish this? And so he was kind of curious to look into that story. And, and, you know, I was game to partner with them on that. And um, we traveled down to Alabama. This was back in late 2017, you know, first we had some meetings with the team in Alabama, and it really just set off this process of discovery, learning about that program and realizing that it had roots in a lot of other places as well. And, and so it really took us around the country in unexpected ways. We should add the Saul Zentz Foundation was started by the late record and film producer Saul Zentz, and it's a very impressive nonprofit organization with a focus on education. I guess we're accustomed to associating Alabama with football and, for the most part, more conservative politics. There certainly is a history of racial discrimination and there has been much change for the better in the course of Alabama history. But this is a surprise to learn that Alabama would be at the forefront of the nation when it comes to progressive education. How did that happen? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and it's something that really intrigued us and surprised us as well as we were digging more into this story. You know, we really, you know, I grew up in the Northeast and uh, we're not from the South. And so it was kind of going into a new world for us. But one of the things that we learned through our time in Alabama and then in Mississippi and North Carolina and other Southern states is well, family is very important in the South in their culture. And so, you know, wanting to create high quality, you know, upbringings for their children is, is one aspect, but it's also, they see this as the workforce of their future. And they're very, you know, Republican conservative politicians, you know, are typically very focused on the economy and business leaders in their communities are really saying, hey, we need a strong pipeline if we're going to remain competitive and if we're going to be successful in the future. And so there's a lot of conservative, you know, red states who you wouldn't necessarily associate with progressive education programs that have really been prioritizing high quality early childhood education as this issue of the workforce of the future. And then not to mention, you know, the benefits for today's workforce as well, because parents have a place, you know, where they can feel good about dropping their children off while, while they go to work themselves. There is a governor's task force of sort. Would you talk about that aspect of the film? Sure, definitely. Yeah, that was another thread that really evolved through the project. Again, we never set out to focus at first on governors, but through our interviews and, and learning just the nuts and bolts of how programs work and what it takes in states to get high quality programs in action, we learned, you know, it's really important to have the buy-in from legislators and really at ultimately to have the support of the governor. And one of the reasons Alabama has been so successful is that multiple governors you know, through transitions have consistently supported funding for the program, whereas so often as we know, 
one governor will come in with a priority, they'll focus on it, they'll invest in it, and then the next governor will come in with a new priority and will undo or, or just discontinue, you know, what the previous governor has started. So that's one of the reasons, you know, Alabama has been so successful. And I think we began to see governors as this real kind of lever for the potential of this expanding just on a national level, you know, if, if, and governors all learn from each other, you know, they convene through organizations like the National Governors Association. And so, you know, our theory through the production became, you know, if governors can get on board and learn from each other, learn from the success of states like Alabama and adopt lessons learned and frameworks that have been proven successful and implemented in their own states, then, you know, there's real potential for state by state, you know, this, this expanding and beginning to have, you know, real national reach and impact. So. And in the film, it's remarkable that with each of the governors who appear on camera, with each of the governors interviewed, you don't state their party affiliation. This is an issue that transcends partisanship. And it's really encouraging to see how it is playing out as a bipartisan issue, because it should be. Going back to the idealism, what are some of the standards that make up a high-quality pre-kindergarten learning setup? Sure. Now you're testing how much I've learned about high-quality early childhood education through all this project, because we definitely all came in as outsiders. So, you know, everyone really emphasizes just the critical, it's a very human endeavor. You really can't replace the human element of how important just caring, loving, responsive relationships between adults and children are for the connecting of neurons in the brain and, you know, just the development of social and emotional skills. That's something that is definitely emphasized in the Alabama program and in high quality programs that we encountered through this is just a real trust that the learning of numbers and letters and how to spell and how to write, all of that will come so much more naturally at later times if there is this strong foundation of social emotional comfort and learning and and just knowing how to interact with other people, with their peers, with teachers, executive functioning skills, you know, all those are just so important. And then the environment is important as well, having it be a stimulating environment with lots of different activities so that children can learn through play. And as we say, in the, one of the teachers says in the film, you know, they think they're playing, but what they're actually doing is learning. Of course, play is the work of children. Right, it's their jobs. <laughs> Indeed. I loved how maybe it was one of the educators who said, you can see an inspiring teacher because she's directing like a maestro. Oh, yes. That would be Diane Schonzenbach, you know, who just provided a wonderful perspective. Yes, yes. And indeed, that is terrific. So we've talked about governors and uh, secretaries of commerce and education. Who is your target audience for this film? Well, you know, back to this idea that we really want this film to make an impact. You know, we wanted to tell a positive story and provide a roadmap for how people and states could begin to accomplish this uh, in a very hands-on way. And so, you know, first and foremost, our target audience really has been policymakers, you know, uh, the teams and governor's offices. But of course, you know, parents are so important in the entire, you know, education community and, and field. Um, and there's so many, you know, one of the things that we learned is that it's, it's really, quote, unquote, a, a field, um, it doesn't necessarily, early education touches so many overlapping sectors, from healthcare, pediatrics, to 
public health is just an expansive issue. And so everybody really needs to work together. And so, you know, we wanted this film to include voices from all of those places, as well as hopefully be able to speak to all those audiences. What can you tell us about the data discussed in the film relating to children who attended early education programs versus those who did not? Sure. Well, I can't give you the exact statistics, but I will say, you know, just it's just across the board. It just proves itself to be such a, a powerful investment because, you know, children are more likely to graduate from high school, to be employed, to go to college, to, you know, be reading at the level that they should be reading um, in third grade, you know, which has been a measure for whether they'll be successful later in schooling and later in life. And one of the really powerful things demonstrated by the Alabama program, and actually a study just came out after uh, we finished the film, but the study and what we talk about in the film is that the Alabama program has really shown students who come in from, you know, marginalized, underprivileged, who just really are are kind of starting a step behind the pre-kindergarten program, just that one year. And one year is definitely not enough, but that year still has a major impact on getting them to the level um, of their peers, um, which has positive impacts throughout their schooling and life. And another point made in the film is that is it 70% of mothers work outside the home and pre-kindergarten programs must serve households where there isn't someone at home all day to take care of a child. But with the positive results, the glowing results of this research, Those should assuage any guilt or misgivings that parents might have about not being stay-at-home parents before a child begins kindergarten or first grade. Right, right. And I think that's where also, you know, there's a real opportunity and need for states and leaders to just lead here and, and comfort their citizens, you know, that there really are high quality opportunities available. You know, the reality right now is that it's pretty patchwork, you know, Um, many programs are private, many programs are very expensive, you know, these high quality programs, like in Alabama, you know, so far just don't have the coverage, you know, that truly offers every single child and and parent the, the comfort of that high quality learning experience. So, there is a gap here right now, um, and parents are placed in this difficult position of having to spend a lot of money, you know, to have their children in hopefully a high quality setting, but in many cases, they're not actually high quality, but they're quite expensive. So it's something that we really need to reflect on as a society, and I think there is a, a real opportunity for state leaders and hopefully at some point federal leaders to just really begin to prioritize this for all of the positive benefits down the line in the future, not to mention the the benefits to to current society. Was it intentional that this film should debut on the eve of an election? (laughs) It's just how life works out sometimes. You know, we've been working on this film so long, and actually the, the pandemic really presented it at first presented a challenge, but also, you know, a real opportunity for us. We were actually planning a premiere and in-person classic, you know, um, screening uh, back in May. And it would have been a much smaller event. And we were had a different cut of the film at that point. And that was going to be our big debut. But um, we obviously put all plans on hold with having an in-person event as, you know, we, we all began to navigate this new normal, uh, virtual normal, and we began just very quickly shifting course. We just kept wanting to rework the film a little bit just to really make sure it was in tune and and feeling current um, with the moment. You know, we just really strengthened some of the calls for equity and 
bipartisanship, nonpartisanship, really. Um, and it just so happens, you know, that the timing really feels like it is kind of perfectly aligning in this time before the election. The emphasis that the educational experts make in your film point to the fact that if we are to have inspired teachers, and especially early learning with inspired, excited teachers, we need to fund them better. Teachers need to earn more. Is it your hope that in a nonpartisan way, the documentary will inspire people to advocate legislation that would promote publicly funding early educational programs. Absolutely. And, you know, those teachers are the ones who day in and day out are with the children and are just responsible for so much of their development at just this really key point in a child's life and a person's life trajectory. And I think to this point, we've really, I think it's starting to sink in a little bit more, but we've just not as a society placed value on the expertise and the skill and the real work that goes into working with young children. Um, it's certainly not just babysitting, you know, um, high, high quality, you know, early educators have deep understanding of child's development. And so it's, it's a two-way street. We absolutely need to provide and require better training for teachers and at the same time pay them livable and, and frankly, you know, really respectable <laughs> salaries to align with the really critical role in our society that they play. So someone has to go first and we would like everyone to, you know, jump in at the same time and just really prioritize this as a society. Filmmaker Willa Kammerer. The link to view her documentary starting at zero is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Since the COVID-19 outbreak, fresh produce and meat have been more difficult to find in grocery stores. Food distributors and supply chains are working tirelessly to keep up with the increasing demand. Food industry workers remain vigilant to protect themselves and others who shop at these stores. An alternative to shopping indoors is to order online from your local farmer's market. Community Farmer's Markets has created a virtual farmer's market where shoppers can order local and organically grown produce. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the executive director, Katie Hayes, via Zoom. Community Farmer's Markets in general has been very proactive about being a safe place to buy your groceries. So the Grant Park Winter Market was in operation when all of this started, um, and we immediately looked around the country for best practices. We created hand-washing stations that are mandatory for entering the market. We have the booths spaced out so that the vendors themselves are not in too close a proximity to each other. And we have lots of other safety protocols in place. For example, our farmers, one handles produce, the other person will handle money, so there's not cross-contamination. Everyone's going to be required to have a mask. You know, all of our employees will have gloves and be following proper, proper safety protocol. Something else that we, we realized from the very beginning that it was important in service industries like ours, people often come to work when they're sick because they're afraid they won't get paid. So we guaranteed that our staff would get paid whether or not they came to work so that people weren't forced to come if they were sick or scared. And so that's been good for morale. Definitely hard uh, to keep up with payroll, but we know that there's that our staff will not be coming to the markets if they're sick. So lots of safety protocols in place. 
And then we also built out our online farmer's market. So it's shop CFM ATL. And it's basically the largest a la carte local ordering system in Atlanta. And you can go on from Wednesdays and Fridays and order whatever you like. So you can pick out radishes from Mayfloor and lettuce from Cosmos and shrimp from Middle Georgia. So you can you can pick out the different items that you like from the farmers that you normally would support. So we have we have pretty much everything on the site um, that you would find at a local farmers market. And we've been we've turned all five of our market locations into pickup only points. It's definitely been an experiment, a challenging one, aggregating all of that produce and products from so many different farms. And so we've been doing it so that the pickup is on Wednesdays at each site. So we have a site in Oakhurst, Decatur, Ponce, East Atlanta, and Grant Park. And then we'll eventually hopefully move to a model where we have the markets open and the pre-ordering available as well. Again, we just want to create as many food access points as possible. The people have been really appreciative of the of the order and pickup site because it, you know, it's a very low contact um, way of shopping. So people go online, they place their order, and then when they arrive to pick up, they basically just write their name down, put it in their window, and then pop the trunk. And so they don't even have to touch any of us. And of course, we're being very safe when we put the bag in the trunk. You know, when they get home, they can wipe off the bag and pretty much be good to go. That's great for vulnerable populations or just anyone that doesn't feel comfortable being in a space with other people at all. Katie Hayes is the executive director of Community Farmers Markets. The market opens and there are pickups each Wednesday from 4 to 7 p.m. More information about Atlanta's farmers markets can be found on their website, cfmatl.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and cultural life. Tomorrow morning at 11, the curator of a new exhibition at the Atlanta History Center will tell us about Atlanta 96, shaping an Olympic and Paralympic city. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer, and I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.